Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Profiles podcast sponsored by LL Flooring. I'm Tom Kreitler, and I have to say I have the best job because on this podcast, I get to interview some really accomplished building and remodeling pros who are willing to share their stories. And through their journeys and experiences and accomplishments, we get to learn ways to improve our own businesses for the benefit of our families, our employees, and our communities. So if you're a builder or a modeler, an architect, a designer, and you want to improve your business, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out by email to profiles at llflooring.com, or you can follow our episodes on the LL Flooring Pro portal at llflooring.com slash pro. And now, let's get to work. My guest today believes that working together, we can transform each other's lives. Chris Lambert is the CEO of Life Remodeled, a nonprofit organization that focuses on the intentional and equitable revitalization of Detroit neighborhoods, distinguished by their significant need and radical hope. Welcome, Chris. Tom, great to be with you today. I love that phrase, radical hope, because you certainly envision that when you started Life Remodeled. For those that are not familiar with the Detroit area of today, or just Detroit in general, can you kind of give us an overview of, of where that city is right now? Because it has had its challenges, and uh, I love the work that you guys are doing to try to reform that. I am happy to do so, because depending on who you're speaking with and what time you're speaking with them in, um, people have a lot of different views of the city of Detroit. And so I think in 2010, Time Magazine called Detroit the icon for the failed American city. And then I want to say it was 2019, Time said that we were a model of the comeback city. Wow. <laughs> Nine short years later, huh? Well, there's some truth to that, and then there's some gaps in that analysis, right? So this is the city that literally put the world on wheels. In 1960, we had the highest per capita income in the nation. And at our peak, we had 1.8 million people. We now have about 650,000 residents. So you can only imagine what that means for vacant land, vacant properties, vacant houses. But uh, the city certainly has been on a resurgence. The city's 142 square miles, but the resurgence has really been limited mainly to the downtown, midtown areas, which are about 7.2 square miles. So the work that we do is focused in the neighborhoods where people live, where that resurgence hasn't quite made the impact that it's made downtown. So let's talk about some of that work. Your organization, Life Remodel, renovates well, you do a lot of things. One of the things you focus on is renovating school buildings. Now, you know, given the stats that you just shared, I imagine that there are a number of school buildings that are not used because the population has decreased so much since its, uh, its high point back in, in the 60s. So has that provided a, a good supply of buildings that need the tender, loving care that you guys deliver to make them useful and an important part of the community once again? There's no shortage of vacant school buildings right now on the market or available. There are over 60, and over 200 vacant school buildings have uh, materialized over the last 20 years, right? So yeah. the population for school children is much smaller. But let me talk about the why of vacant school buildings, why we repurpose them. So when you think about how these schools were built back in the day, and, and more importantly, where they were built, they were built in the center of communities. 
and they were designed as hubs of opportunity for academics, athletics, and social advancement. When a school building closes, that is a dagger to the heart of hope for a community, and school buildings don't close overnight. They're the result of decades of disinvestment. And so we take this painful disinvestment, which, by the way, when these buildings were built in the early 1900s, they were works of art. They were built to last. When I say vacant school buildings in Detroit, the kind that we work on, people need to think about Harry Potter school. That's the image you should have coming to your mind, not a modern-day school building lacking windows and natural light and built to not last, but something marvelous like this. And so although that is true, there are many vacant school buildings, we will not work on one that's less than 100,000 square feet because if it's any smaller than that, we can't mobilize enough organizations to move into the building that will truly bring lasting transformation to the community. Now, when you renovate these vacant school buildings, you're not returning them necessarily as schools. You're turning them into sort of one-stop hubs of opportunities for entire families to take advantage of and to thrive and to grow. Can you talk about some of the uses? I know you're working on one project right now that's called the Durfee Innovation Society, one of the vacant schools, I believe your first major project. And what what is that particular project bringing to the community? What are you using that building for? In the past, we used to renovate existing schools that are school still schools to this day. But in 2017, the school district said, we want you to repurpose this soon-to-be-vacant school building. And we ended up saying yes and taking on the project. And so before we ever began renovating this building, which is now gorgeous, we went into the community, we went into the neighboring schools, we asked community members and students, what kinds of increased opportunities do you want to see more of in your community? And we heard a lot of things, but there were three categories that kept being said over and over and over again. In no particular order, people were saying, we want more youth programming, we want more job opportunities and more job training, and third, we want more health and human services, which community members would just call community resources. And so we began then renovating the building in 2017, bringing it up to code and making it look just absolutely spectacular. And then we went out and found the best and brightest nonprofits who are moving the needle in those three areas. Then we moved them into our building. So this building's 143,000 square feet. Again, think Harry Potter's school from the outside. And we have 39 different organizations that we've moved into this building. It's 100% occupied. And together with these organizations, we're serving almost 18,000 people a year in very holistic ways. That's amazing. You've lifted a major headache and, frankly, a major overhead item that any nonprofit faces, and that's having a good, reliable, safe space in which to do the work that they do. By putting it all on one roof, you're sharing the collective community the opportunity to take advantage of probably nonprofits that are offering services that they never would have known about. Because part of part of the challenge here is is really trying to figure out what somebody needs to be successful. And I know that you have folks that do this that help them that understand you know the landscape and the social programs and the opportunities and help connect the dots. Because a lot of folks get lost looking for this, and I understand why, because it's a very confusing landscape. 
Yes, there's three major reasons nonprofits want to move into our buildings. And we're like I said, we're 100% occupied with a waiting list, which is why we're about to replicate this model in the largest vacant Detroit public school building soon. But the three reasons nonprofits want to move in here, number one, we're charging a lease rate that's break-even. Almost the exact same amount of money that it costs us to operate this building is what we're charging our tenants. And so they can't get rent at cost anywhere in the city of Detroit. The second reason they want to move here is nonprofits want to be located where people live, but they're not going to move into a highly distressed neighborhood like the neighborhoods that we work in into a standalone building by themselves, primarily for safety concerns. And then the third reason nonprofits want to move here is because people are moving more and more toward collaboration these days, which is a beautiful thing, but a lot of nonprofits just don't know how to collaborate. And this space is the place where you can do that easily and regularly, and we have a lot of programming in place to ensure that they're collaborating well. But I'll also say, imagine one of my favorite organizations in the world, the Boys and Girls Club. Absolutely love Boys and Girls Clubs. But in the traditional model, it's in a standalone building where that's the only program. So if I'm a parent, I'm picking up my kid from Boys and Girls Club, there's nothing there for me in that building. There's nothing there for my parents. And there's nothing there for my younger children if they're too young for the programming. But if you take that Boys and Girls Club, which we've done, and you put that in one of our buildings, now all of a sudden there's something for me as a parent, which would be a new job opportunity. There's programming for 900 senior citizens, which would be my mom and dad. There's free diapers and formula for infants, which would be my newborn you know, child. And then there's dozens of youth programs and a federally qualified health center and a cancer support group. I mean, you name it, it's here. And so now all of a sudden, this brings families together. Instead of going from one social service to the other, you're, you're there as a family unit. Well, you're bringing families together. You're bringing families directly to the services and the opportunities they need. And as you mentioned, you're bringing the nonprofits together so they can collaborate successfully. So it sounds like a really terrific model that's obviously working well for you. How did you get started in this, Chris? I know you started back in 2010, but things were mighty bleak back then. Is this the idea that you had that got you going, or did you start with different projects? We started with very different projects, and when I began this organization, I had absolutely no idea that it would grow into what it's grown into. But what I love about how it's grown is that we've always stayed true to the mission, and we're always staying within our, our niche. And it's taken us some time, though, to discover really the bullseye. And when we first began, we, we did something that was quite difficult at the time, uh, but it's very small compared to what we do now. We used to build houses in six days, kind of like the Extreme Makeover Home Edition show. Right, yeah. And sure. we would uh, deed them for free to uh, deserving families, but we would take the families through financial training, set them up with a clinical psychologist to process family dynamics. And we would also invest in the whole surrounding community with hundreds of volunteers when we first began. And that was very transformative work. But over the years, after doing that six times, we discovered a model that would have much more impact in the whole surrounding community than just building one house at a time for a family. I'm looking at some of your output here. It was on your website for schools. This is since 2014. 
uh, $38.5 million invested, uh, 1,810 blocks beautified, and 72,276 volunteers engaged, 194 homes repaired, and 2,062 houses boarded up, hopefully to prepare them and preserve them for, for the future. But I want to ask you about the volunteer base. This has been a key to your success. Who are the folks that are volunteering? Are these uh, remodeling and construction pros as well as lay people that are all pitching in together to do what they can do to improve these spaces? Both and. So let's talk about our home repair program second, but let's first talk about our annual six-day project. So our six-day project actually is about to take place the first week of October. It takes place every year. And we mobilize thousands of volunteers over six straight days, Monday through Saturday, who beautify several square miles of Detroit in those six days. So in a pre-COVID world, we were mobilizing ten to 12,000 volunteers in one week. In the world that we live in now, we're going to have a little over 6,000 volunteers this year. And what that includes during that week is we provide all the tools we provide the lawnmowers, the weed whackers, the edgers, the blowers, the rakes, the shovels, and volunteers are removing blight on vacant properties. So they're cutting down large, overgrown brush and weeds, getting rid of illegal dumping, boarding up vacant properties, as you said. This year, we're doing something we've never done before during our six-day project. We're doing everything I just told you, plus we're going to mow the lawns of veterans, senior citizens, and people who are experiencing disabilities. And I'm excited about what that's going to do just to increase the amount of engagement between community members and volunteers who don't live in the community. So for the six-day project, it's really an amalgamation of volunteers from all over Metro Detroit, and we even have some groups that come out of state. But it's a lot of volunteers from corporate America. Over 150 companies send volunteers to us. And we've had years where General Motors sent 3,700 volunteers in one week. You know, this year they'll send about, I think, 600 volunteers. And companies like Masco will send a few hundred and Rocket, Mortgage, and a number of companies. But um, that's the six-day project. And the amount of transformation that happens during that six days is really um, overwhelmingly inspirational. There are homes where you literally wouldn't even know that there is a house behind the overgrown brush. And within four hours, a team of 10 people take it all down and, and, and they say what you just said. They say, wow. Poof. <laughs> Magically, there's the house. <laughs> this project does two major things. One, it makes communities safer. Because where there's a lot of overgrown brush and weeds and illegal dumping, blight sends messages to suspecting criminals oh, no one's really watching me. I can get away with anything. And when you take care of that, it, it significantly improves crime. We've got the statistics to prove it, where the police department came to us one year following a project. They said, you got to see this. Crime dropped in 10 out of 11 categories for an entire year, including a 47% reduction in homicides. So that's major, right? You're clearly saving lives because, as you say, crime is going to continue in places where criminals feel safe and they don't feel safe in nice houses. They don't feel safe without the cover of trees and bushes and overgrown brush. When it becomes obvious that people are invested in this community, and I want to lift up the heroes that live in Detroit neighborhoods. Imagine, like I said, a city that went from 1.8 million people to 650,000 people. 
there's no way that residents should be expected to maintain this blight and this vacancy on their own. And our city is doing the best that it can with the resources that we have. Um, but there's a need for ongoing volunteerism in Detroit neighborhoods probably for the next 10 years, right? So it's great how our community is coming together. But the other thing I want to say about this project is it brings people together from all different walks of life, different races, different religions, different political perspectives. And what I found is if you try to get two people who are polar opposites on any of those three areas that I just mentioned, and you ask them to sit down at a table, look each other in the eye, have a conversation and work it out, nine times out of ten, that's not a very productive conversation. But if you can invite those same two people to work shoulder to shoulder on an action-oriented project that they both agree on, something magical happens, and they begin to develop foundations of respect for one another. Yeah, it's a positive collaboration opportunity. You know, you mentioned that uh, you were going to have all of this lawn cutting going on and that sort of thing, and that you have ongoing relationships that are formed. Out of these six-day projects, do you find that the volunteers uh, organize and stay behind, or do you, do you organize them to, to help those, for example, that can't cut their lawns or do those sorts of basic maintenance tasks to have, have uh, that sort of service available to them, you know, perhaps not on an every week basis, but at least on, on some regular basis that they, their properties don't uh, fall into disrepair again? What we've done is create tool banks in communities where we leave behind a number of lawnmowers and weed whackers and create accessibility. And, and basically, it's case by case, depending on what neighborhood uh, block clubs want and what are the opportunities. And yes, we have been able to match some groups that want to continue volunteering in a specific area of the neighborhood or with a specific block club or organization. And we've seen a lot of relationships become sustainable. Talking to Chris Lambert, he's the founder and CEO of Life Remodeled, an organization he started back in 2010 that's made an amazing progress throughout the city of Detroit and areas that they work in to create communities that collaborate together and improve spaces so that all can benefit. Now, Chris, one of your programs is a home repair program. I know that you've repaired almost 200 homes uh, in these short years. Tell us how that program works. What we do is we provide homeowners in Detroit who live in the communities that we're working in, right, where these opportunity hubs are. We provide them the opportunity to get one critical repair free of charge. And the three options that we offer are either a new roof, a new furnace, or new windows. And the reason it's those three options is because, in our experience, those are the most critical repairs that homeowners need that are really affecting their quality of life in terms of, uh, obviously, if you have holes in your roof or, or, or windows that are leaking, you're being exposed to elements, right? And when it comes to furnaces, there are a number of families in Detroit that heat their homes with their ovens or stoves in the winter. Super dangerous situation. For multiple reasons. And that contributes to a lot of the, the fires that we see happening in the city of Detroit. And so... All of that work is done by professional contractors. You don't want a guy like me working on your house, okay? I, I can do demolition with the best of them, but we get the best who volunteer their time, and we get um, even materials donated, carrier donates furnaces, wall side windows donates windows, and so on and so forth, and professionals um, give of their time to make this happen. Yeah, they're well-defined projects, too. You know, a roof is a roof and generally aside once the structure as long as the structure is okay it doesn't get too much 
more complicated, so you can accomplish a lot of roof replacements in a short period of time. Same thing with a furnace. Once it's installed and it's installed safely and working properly, you know that that is sort of self-sustaining in windows. Boy, what a great improvement because that makes those homes efficient both in winter uh, and in summer. And again, with technology today, replacement window technology, uh, that's a straightforward remove and replace out with the old and, and in with the new, but you leave behind a greatly improved and more comfortable home for the resident. Exactly. And a big part of what needs to happen in Detroit is we need to keep our residents in the city. And there are so many amazing families who just don't have the extra cash on hand to be able to afford a big ticket expense like the items that we just spoke about. And not only do we want to keep them in the city, but we want them to be healthy. We want them to be happy. We want them to be secure. And we want their children to live in a safe environment. And so that's why this work is so important. And I'm just grateful for the many contractors who believe in Detroit residents. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that once you started to improve these areas of Detroit, you actually attracted developers who were willing to invest in the area where before it might have been just something they would pass by. Is that the case? That is the case. And our work is focused on creating access to opportunities for people who've lived in these communities for decades and experienced all the injustice and the disinvestment. We absolutely want to see more people move into these neighborhoods. And that is happening and does happen. But again, our focus isn't as much for maybe necessarily middle class or middle upper class individuals who we want to move in, right? But we want to make sure the people who've lived here have the opportunity to stay because prices are going to rise in this community. And they they already are starting to on some homes, which presents a challenge to many people who rent, right? But by creating these access to these opportunities to thrive economically, socially, educationally, that allows for people to not have to be displaced and to really take pride in their community. Well, the model that you've created is certainly having an incredible impact on the city of Detroit. Uh, Is this a model that would work well for other cities? Are there other cities that you're considering sharing your knowledge and experience with and and helping set up similar organizations in, in those cities? Yes, and yes, the story of vacant school buildings that are causing havoc on communities is unfortunately a story that's common throughout the country, and especially in Rust Belt cities and throughout the Midwest. We've taken a real good look in cities like Indianapolis, St. Louis, Chicago, and now we're starting to look at several smaller cities in Michigan and Ohio and, and, and other local states. For us to be able to replicate this model, all the stars have to align in terms of finding the right building that uh, community members want to be activated into something like this, which I haven't met a community that doesn't want something like this yet, a community that's experienced um, the vacancy of a vacant school building. But there also has to be the philanthropic support locally and the nonprofits that are interested in moving into a collaborative space. So We haven't experienced a shortage of opportunities, but we're being very selective about where we're going to expand to next. Uh, What we can do is we can offer just general guidance on what's worked for us. And and I could write a book on a thousand things I would do differently the next time around, all the mistakes that we've made. And eventually we will be creating a resource that can be shared freely throughout the country just to, to share those tips. Well, I think the idea that you've you've sought alignment between all the impacted parties, you know, between 
those that would fund this, between those that are members and living in this community. And you've tried to create, in this example of the Durfee Innovation Society, uh, a building that really has addressed all of the needs that were identified for you. So the idea of doing the research and seeking the alignment and the cooperation of those that are impacted is really a key to success. But that's not something that happens, you know, overnight. That's something that takes years of, of effort. So I could see that just sort of transferring, you know, what you've done in Detroit, it's not easy to kind of drop in like it's, an, like it's, like it's a franchise. You know, you're going to have to really build trust and build understanding because, frankly, what you do is very unique. And I'm sure a lot of these communities have heard grand plans, so to speak, before, but they need to make sure that anyone that starts down this path is going to be able to deliver. And certainly you've proven that you can do that through what you've accomplished in Detroit. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I, I'm a big believer that everything in life is about relationships. And relationships take time to truly build foundations of trust. And trust is built by listening to what community members are looking for and actually delivering upon those commitments again and again consistently. And it starts small and it builds from there. And if and when we expand to other cities, we'll be expanding by partnering with local individuals, local organizations that are fully committed to their communities and, and investing in them for, for the long haul. So when's the grand opening for Durfee? Durfee's open. open? We, okay. we started the Durfee project on July 5th of 2017, and we opened it up actually December of that very year. Uh, but we've poured in a lot more resources even since then. So, uh, yeah, Durfee's serving 17,500 people a year in all those three areas that we discussed. And there's 39 organizations here that are uh, – really doing impressive work. We're talking to Chris Lambert, the CEO of Life Remodeled. His organization has been focusing on renovating vacant school buildings in the city of Detroit, making them hubs for the community and a whole host of nonprofits that serve that same community. So, Chris, what's next? What project is coming up now that you are just about done with all the work at the Durfee Innovation Society? What project's next for Life Remodeled? Our next project is going to be our biggest yet. We are in the process of purchasing the largest Detroit public school building called Cooley High School. And for those familiar with Detroit, that is a name that they know through and through. This was a very impactful powerhouse school, both academically and athletically, but it's been vacant since 2010. It's literally a national historic monument. Mike Illich, the founder of Little Caesars Pizza went to Cooley. He put the building on the National Monument registration after um, it closed. And the building is in shambles. The, the roof has active leaks. The windows have all been ripped out. The, the HVAC, the copper, it's all gone, right? And the building is on the verge of being unrehabable. However, we've been working on this plan for two and a half years, engaging community members, finding out what they want, figuring out exactly what it's going to take to renovate this building, both in terms of scope, budget, timeline. And we've actually already solidified nine LOIs from nine nonprofits committed to move into that space and lease over 80% of this 332,000 square foot building. So we're ready to be off and running, and uh, the acquisition of the property should happen before the end of this year. Well, I imagine a building of that size, scope, and, and age has a lot of needs. I mean, there's probably going to be 
lead, there could be asbestos, there certainly is going to be inefficiency in the design of the HVAC system, all things that would need to be addressed during the remodel. You must have an impressive team of professionals that sorts through these sorts of issues and helps set the path uh, for success moving forward. Our general contractor is the largest construction company in the state, Barton Mallow, and um, very good friends with their president and their COO is on our board. And we work very diligently to also employ as many Detroit-based companies as we can, and companies also led by African-American leadership. And, um, yes, it's a very intense process. All of those elements are present that, that you mentioned. Uh, these school buildings are extremely inefficient when it comes to heating and cooling, and, of course, the walls aren't insulated. But with the right approach, it becomes an amazing space. We have folks that are listening that want to know how they can get involved, how they can help you, whether they are building and remodeling professionals or not. Uh, what are some of the ways that they could reach out and connect? Anybody and everybody is welcome to volunteer on any of our six-day projects. And like I said, we've had teams come from out of state as far as Maine and California, all right? And so you're all welcome. Uh, our next one will be the first full week of October every year. So keep that on your calendar if you're interested. And when it comes to other ways to get involved, obviously financial donations are what make these projects happen. And people can go to our website at liferemodel.org, L-I-F-E-R-E-M-O-D-E-L-E-D.org. And the third way would really just be telling the story, sharing with others what's going on, what's happening. And it takes a village to raise a child. And so when we spread the good news of all the great things happening in Detroit neighborhoods, it, uh, it impacts a lot of lives in the process. Well, hopefully we've told that story well enough today to have folks interested in, in giving to you and helping you and supporting you and, all, and your organization and all that you do. Chris Lambert, the CEO of Life Remodeled. Chris, thank you for all the contributions that you're making personally and professionally to transforming the lives of those that live in the city of Detroit, and in particular in the areas that need the most help. Appreciate you being part of the Profiles podcast and sharing your story. Thank you, Tom. I'm honored to do it together with you, brother. 